1: to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. In 2016, a presidential candidate pitched himself as a no-nonsense corruption buster, a man of the people. I'm talking, of course, about Rodrigo Duterte. We look at his very short list of accomplishments as the Philippines' leader and what he leaves behind— And you've probably heard about the metaverse, virtual copies of the real world where businesses are already setting up shop, from nightclubs to fashion houses to realtors and speculators who have some swampland in a digital Florida to sell you. But first... Today, children in Chicago are returning to school. The city's public schools had canceled all classes last week after the teachers' union voted against in-person learning, saying it was unsafe during the Omicron surge. It's the latest skirmish over how American children should be taught during the pandemic.
2: So it's all, it's all, who knows what's happening.
1: Tracy Sandlin is the head of Chicago Collegiate, which teaches middle and high school on Chicago's south side.
2: Yes, so we are currently in person. We just came back on Monday. Last week, we were remote.
1: As a charter academy, her school wasn't part of the union discussions. Nevertheless, it closed for in-person teaching last week.
2: We identified approximately 40% of our staff was either positive or would be actively quarantining Um, when we would need to come back to school last week. And we said, hmm. That makes running school kind of difficult to do.
1: As is familiar now for many schools, they flipped to teaching remotely.
2: We are able to be nimble and responsive to families and what's happening on the ground. So we can flip a cohort to remote within hours. So that is kind of our secret that makes our families more comfortable. And us as educators feel like we're doing right by our kids in terms of keeping them physically safe, but also helping them continue to learn academically.
1: Case numbers keep hitting record highs, and the longer the question of schooling remains unresolved, the more anomalous the country's situation becomes.
3: America's children missed more face-to-face schooling than those almost anywhere else in the rich world since the pandemic began.
1: Mark Johnson is The Economist's education correspondent.
3: In the worst affected parts of the country, children missed three times more schooling than those in Ireland, five times more than those in France. Since the return from the winter holidays, some schools have been closing again.
1: And what exactly is behind all of these closures?
3: Well, in part, some schools are closing because of problems finding staff. Too many teachers and support staff are being required to self-isolate. But it's also the case that some schools have been closing preemptively because they believe that that is safer for their staff and students. Since COVID-19 first appeared, there have been endless questions about how far it's likely to spread in schools. The evidence is reasonably clear that up to now, schools have not been enormous sources of infection, that they tend to reflect the level of infection in the outside community rather than being creators of great spread. But of course, the arrival of the Omicron variant requires more study, we know that uh, children who catch COVID-19 are at very low risk of becoming seriously ill as a result of the infection.
1: And you said earlier that, that America is is very much an outlier in this regard. It does seem surprising that we're still debating keeping schools open to two years into the pandemic when, when many other jurisdictions seem to have cracked that question.
3: Well, yes, I think the debate in America about school opening is rather more shrill than it is elsewhere, where the battle over whether children should or should not be in school during this pandemic has effectively been won. Schools in England went back to school with higher infection rates this year than in America, and with fewer small children vaccinated, but there was much less commotion. And indeed, some foreign educators would envy the benefits that American schools have had during this pandemic, which include large amounts of federal funding, some $200 billion found for schools since 2020. And indeed, America was quicker than many other rich countries to make vaccines available to all adults and indeed to extend vaccine availability to children. So why is it then that it has become
1: more shrill, as you say, in America?
3: There are a couple of reasons to point to. I think media coverage has probably not helped. So there was a study in 2020 that showed that 90% of stories about school reopening run by big American news providers were negative in tone versus only about half of those abroad. I think unions have been more sceptical and more opposed to reopening in America than those elsewhere. And I think one of the reasons why American schools have been quicker to close and have closed for longer is that they are able to. So in Europe, national or regional governments decide when to open or close schools. And in America, the decisions have largely fallen to officials in its 13,000 school districts. And that's kind of splintered the debate about reopening into thousands of angry arguments, which have not really been good venues for making the kind of difficult trade-offs that school reopenings have
1: required. Well, if you could get all of those thousands of districts to coordinate, what, what are your recommendations for keeping schools open? What needs to be done here?
3: Well, ventilation is important, but that can be as simple as keeping windows and doors open. The data on masking is not entirely clear. We know generally that masking keeps people more safe from infection than they otherwise would be. In classrooms, it's not quite so clear whether young children actually benefit from wearing masks or whether they're able to wear them correctly. And there's no doubt at all that it does interfere with learning in the long term. Another thing that provides reasonable protection is, of course, vaccination. So in America in late December, about 53% of 12 to 17 year olds were fully vaccinated. About 23% of 5 to 11 year olds have received at least one dose since they became eligible in early November. And there's plenty of evidence that vaccinations continue to provide good protection against severe illness. There are some districts that have been talking about making a vaccination for COVID-19 mandatory for children to attend school. It's not completely unheard of. Many American districts have requirements that children are vaccinated against many childhood diseases before going to school.
1: So given all of those challenges, how do you see this playing out in America?
3: Well, there's no doubt that it's going to be incredibly difficult to cope with the number of staff that are self-isolating in the coming weeks. And that, as I said, is true for American schools and it's true for schools all around the world. But I think schools need to keep finding creative ways of covering for quarantine teachers, whether that's pulling administrative staff into classrooms or inviting back retirees. I think where staff shortages become very severe, it would be better to send only some groups back to remote learning before resorting to whole school closures.
1: And and we know that this has negative impacts on, on the children. And presumably, the longer this goes on, the worse those impacts are.
3: We know that long periods of remote learning have been terrible for kids' academic achievement. Uh, one study from McKinsey found that children had fallen four months behind in mathematics and three months behind in reading. It's been bad for equality. The same report found that students in majority black schools had fallen five months behind where they were compared to only two months for majority white ones. And it's also now recognized to have been a disaster for children's mental health, having pushed up mental health admissions at hospitals.
2: The consequence we saw, and I think of talking about our high school, is in the time we were remote, we had four teenage pregnancies that we know about. We think there were a few more. When we were in person, we either had none and maybe one. I had kids that didn't graduate that should have graduated. I, quite frankly, lost kids to the neighborhood because we weren't there literally every day to be like, you can do it. You're choosing to be someone different. And we saw that We saw that impact. Kids have struggled coming back in person, being with large groups of people. They struggled in their conflict resolution. And probably most damaging for our kids that I serve, they've struggled with their connection to school and their sense of possibility that the world can be different. And for that, I think being in person is, is the most important thing for their social emotional well-being even though we know we can deliver quality instruction via the computer.
3: And I think in most circumstances, except in the rarest of circumstances, schools should stay open.
1: Mark, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you.
4: I I uh, please state uh, your Rodrigo name, Roa Duterte, do solemnly swear do solemnly swear that I will faithfully that I will faithfully and conscientiously and conscientiously fulfill fulfill my duties my duties as president, as president, as president of the Philippines of the Philippines So back in
1: 2016, the Philippines got a new and unconventional president.
4: I, I must admit that I have killed three months uh, early on, I, I, I killed about three people.
1: He presented himself as an outsider, an ordinary man who was going to be tough on drugs.
4: If you insist on a drug war, I will kill you all.
1: And who was going to stamp out government graft.
4: My promise to the people of the Philippines was that I would suppress corruption in government.
1: But after five and a half years in charge, he's failed to live up to his aims, even by his own standards.
4: I do not think that I can fulfill my promise to the people.
1: So with the presidential elections in May, what sort of legacy will Mr. Duterte leave behind? And what is the future for the Philippines?
5: President Duterte is doing surprisingly well in the polls with an over 70% popularity rating
1: Dominic Ziegler is our senior Asia correspondent and writes Banyan, our column about Asian
5: affairs. Given that he's been in office for five years and not accomplished much, that's surprising. So how how has he fallen short of what he promised? He promised a number of things. The first is constitutional change. He said that he would devolve powers away from the top-heavy capital in Manila down to the regions. That's come to nothing. He promised that by... Getting cozy with President Xi Jinping of China, that would unleash a whole wave of investment. But the investment hasn't come. The pandemic has been handled badly by his administration, and fewer than half of Filipinos are now doubly vaxxed. By his own admission, his notorious war on drugs has failed.
4: Drugs. We do not have the we do not have the equipment, in drugs, we can control it,
5: although at a terrible human cost it 's not a great performance,
1: so why then is he doing so well in the polls?
5: Well, one explanation for why he 's doing so well in the polls is that in fact it 's a mirage there 's a tendency in the Philippines for people when polled, and indeed, when they vote to act as a herd, local community sentiment is very strong you you do what your community does. And not only that, Duterte believes he is an authoritarian and he's behaved within the limitations of the Philippines, which is a nominal democracy, as if he were an authoritarian. When an authoritarian is in charge, it makes sense, it's safer to go with the herd. Nevertheless, I think the herd is moving on now. Moving on how? What makes you say that? Well, one clue is that in November, Mr. Duterte launched a bid for the vice-presidency And that's a rather constitutionally dubious move. No president has done that before. He did it in order to try to hang on to power in a political system that only allows one term as president. But then he very quickly withdrew from the vice presidential race. And that was because ordinary Filipinos blew a big raspberry at the prospect of him reappearing as vice president. The political establishment is moving on. And in fact, they have already abandoned him and that begins with his daughter, Sarah Duterte.
1: How so? How does she figure in?
5: Well, she was in opinion polls far and away the most popular presidential hopeful. We want
4: Sarah. We want Sarah. We want Sarah. We want
5: She took over from her father as mayor of the southern city of Davao but had a national following. And it was assumed that if she threw her hat in the ring for the presidency, she would be a shoe in And her father's ruling party absolutely hoped that she would be their candidate. But it never came to pass. And the reason is that Sarah Duterte has strained relations with her father. She blames her father for her parents' separation. And even more than that, She absolutely loathes his henchmen. So instead of allying herself and running as the presidential candidate with the ruling party, she said that she would run as vice president. And the alliance she made was with the son of the late Philippine dictator, Ferdinand Marcos. The son goes by the name of Bong Bong, who is the favorite to win the presidency. She is supporting his bid as vice president. So rather at
1: the last, then, it it, it seems that Mr. Duterte is sort of fading from, from relevance. What do you think we can expect from him as his term runs out?
5: In terms of his own few months left in power, well, I think that they will be colored by scandal. There's a growing corruption scandal around a pharmaceutical company that was well connected with members of the government and that received outsized contracts. Then the question is, what then will remain of Duterte's strongman rule and his muscular hand on on the Philippines? And the answer may be that his legacy will be far less than anyone might have supposed. He may leave behind him nothing but a country with even more weakened democratic guardrails and institutions. But in terms of economic growth, in terms of investment uh, in terms of his promises to deal with drugs. Well, all of that is a failure.
1: Are you surprised by that outcome? I mean, we've, we've spoken about Mr. Duterte a bunch of times over the past few years.
5: I mean, strong men destroy things more than they build them. That was the case with President Trump, to whom Duterte is often compared. And they're not always concerned about legacies other than remaining in power or remaining influential. In Duterte's case, he faces possible prosecution for his violent war on drug criminals and addicts. Not least the International Criminal Court is considering charges. But the strongman Duterte is not concerned about his legacy so much as his own survival and despite the strains with his daughter, that of his family.
1: Dominic, thank you very much for joining us.
5: Thank you, Jason.
1: For more analysis like this from our international network of correspondents, take out a subscription to The Economist. Get a great introductory deal at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. The world's tech bro gurus have some big promises about what the future looks like. Soon, they say, we'll all have a presence in, as Facebook boss Mark Zuckerberg puts it.
3: An embodied internet where you're in the experience, not just looking at it. And we call this the metaverse. metaverse, metaverse.
1: Not just looking at the metaverse, in it working, socializing, maybe just wandering around. And like the real world, some places are going to be busier or more popular. Another case of location, location, location. And with that comes an unreal estate market.
6: People have been buying and selling virtual property, often in video games, for decades.
3: Need a place to call home in Second Life? With your own Linden home, you get a private space to decorate and
1: design that shows off your style. Vingero Ngandowire is The Economist's global property correspondent.
6: What's changed is that digital real estate prices have been given a boost by soaring interest in the metaverse.
1: There is an increasing amount of talk about the metaverse, but I think not a whole lot of understanding. So, so talk me through it as, as someone who remembers, for example, Second Life.
6: The metaverse is a term used for 3D virtual worlds, just like Second Life, where people can connect with others. There are lots of metaverses. You know, Some are built by video game developers, but more recently, companies like Facebook and Microsoft are building their own metaverses too. So all sorts of real estate is springing up across these different metaverses. What's really fascinating now is how virtual property has gone from being this really niche and obscure part of gaming to something that investors are willing to spend millions to own.
1: Which is to say that that in this virtual world, in these virtual worlds, there is a real property market going on.
6: Yes, real money is changing hands. In one example, someone paid over $400,000 to buy a plot of land next to a virtual mansion that belongs to the rapper Snoop Dogg. So in this case, they'll get bragging rights for their money. But more broadly, investors and landlords of virtual buildings earn a share of any of the commerce that happens on their sites. So if people are spending money, or in this case, cryptocurrency, in a virtual nightclub or casino whoever owns that building can earn from those transactions so the decision to buy rent out or hold on to virtual property with the intent of selling it later is a bet that its value will increase as more people join the metaverse
1: but this is this is still very much a a speculative business right i imagine that leads to property speculators
6: Yes, and as a result, prices are shooting up. In November, Republic Realm, which is a company that manages digital real estate, paid $4.3 million for land in the metaverse. So far, that's the biggest virtual property investment to date. And their land is located in a virtual world called Decentraland, where small plots of land that were selling for $20 a piece a few years ago can now fetch hundreds of thousands of dollars in cryptocurrency. And in another example, Superworld is a virtual planet that I came across where people can buy digital versions of any place on Earth. So the creators behind Superworld say that the average user spends around $3,000 on property purchases and you can buy places like the Taj Mahal in India or the Eiffel Tower in Paris.
1: But somebody spending a lot of money on a a Taj Mahal replica in one metaverse does not own the Taj Mahal. Why, Why is it worth so much if there are so many of these things cropping up?
6: Anyone that's buying virtual property is essentially making a bet that many more people are going to join that particular metaverse. You know, the biggest difference with the virtual property market is that there's so much volatility involved compared to physical property. This isn't the stable asset class that traditional property markets are often associated with. Big swings in value for cryptocurrencies mean that virtual property prices could go either way. But one thing that is similar to the physical world is that profits in the metaverse will depend on footfall and people's willingness to spend real money. But for that to happen, the user experience needs to improve. And so like many things in the crypto world, any property purchase is really just a leap of faith.
1: Benjiro, thank you very much for your time.
6: Thanks for having me.